So we're here in this book, the book of Jude, a short book, one chapter, 25 verses, a postcard, if you would, rather than a letter. And Jude's real name would be Judas, which I don't think how many people would want to read the book of Judas, uh, which is probably why this Jude and the six other Judases in the Bible started referring to themselves more and more as Jude instead of Judas. I think we all understand why, right? Uh, There's six Judases in the Bible. The most famous one is that apostle, that disciple that betrayed Jesus and hung himself. And uh, we'll read verse 1 through 3. We can read this greeting here. And it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Again, Jude, he sort of goes by a different name. We've had lots of new babies here in the church family. Not many Judases walking around or crawling around, right? There's just certain names you sort of back away from. You don't really sit on the baby book, honey. I think this is the one, Lucifer. I, I, think, I think this is the one, right? Or, right, Judas, Lucifer, Bathsheba, Jezebel, don't know too many of those out there, right? Just the bad rep that sort of goes with that name. But who is this man? His, his title that he gives himself, his identity is a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he's the brother of James. We could just write down Matthew 13. Verse 55, uh, some people are sort of blown away at Jesus and what he's saying, how he's speaking. And some of the people in the area say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? You see, this Jude is no one other than the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He says that he's the brother of James. James, he's the one that wrote the book of James. And James is also a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And again, why in the world, I think each and every one of us, if we were brothers of Jesus, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm Jude, the brother of Jesus. So that makes me like half perfect, right? Doesn't that, doesn't that mean that, right? I grew up with him. I knew him. I hung out with him, right? And yet he clings to being a servant of Jesus Christ. We could turn quickly to John chapter 7, and in John chapter 7, right, even with Jesus being a perfect son, being a perfect brother, it seems like there is a bit of friction within their family. Imagine that, friction in the family. John chapter 7, verse 3 through 5, Jesus, he's grown up with them, he's lived with them, he's been a carpenter like his father. At 30 years of age, he begins his ministry, begins telling people that he is the Messiah. It seems like his brothers weren't too much into that. In verse 3, John chapter 7, it says, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Again, we should take a little bit of comfort here. For, for some of us, God is using us in sharing the gospel maybe with some of your friends, maybe some of your coworkers, maybe your barber, maybe at the grocery store on a plane and you're being able to share the gospel and people are taking it. People are taking it to heart. But it seems as if for most of us, our own brothers and sisters... 
our own parents, our own kids, it seems like there's a disconnect there. And we can be stressed out saying, Lord, why isn't this working? Again, for Jesus Christ, even his own brothers were not willing to see who he was. And you couldn't say it wasn't because he had a bad testimony of Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ, right? It's not like he had a bad testimony of being a believer or a bad testimony of being a Christian. He was perfect. And yet his very own brothers did not receive him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Christ. So again, there should be comfort there for us. It's difficult for some of us to take harsh truth, right, the truth and love from some people so close to us. The good news is that in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, as the disciples are waiting for the promise that Jesus told them, hey, wait in Jerusalem till you've received the promise, which is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You see, what changed in the life of James and Jude was seeing Jesus dying and Jesus resurrecting. And that's the same for each and every one of us as believers. What should change our life is the truth of knowing that Jesus died taking my place, taking my punishment for my sins. He took my place and then he resurrected from the dead. And when we hold to these truths, again, our lives should be changed for, for forever. And maybe you're here and you're sort of bummed out, just life application from Jude. You're bummed out at the age you are or you were when you first came to the Lord, right? Thoughts of being left behind, thoughts of, man, I wasted too much time. I'll never be able to catch up. And I think these thoughts could have crept into the mind and hearts of Jude and James. How dull could they have been to not see that their own brother who they grew up with was the son of God? He wasn't just a goody two-shoes or a goody two-sandals like Joe Foch says, right? It wasn't just that he was perfect or obnoxious. He would never get in trouble, right? They would always take the brunt of it. But they couldn't see that he was the Son of God. And that condemnation can creep into our hearts. It can creep into our minds. They could have been down that, man, the other disciples, they had three years with Jesus. They got to see him multiply the bread. They got to see him multiply the fish. They saw him walk on water, They saw him transfigured on the mountain. They saw him do miracles, healing the blind, healing the lepers, healing the paralytic. What what do we have to offer to the Lord? May the lives of Jude and James encourage you. Because they grew up into who God called them to be. They were able to write two books in the Bible. They were pillars in the church and God used them in mighty ways. It's never too late for you to be used by God. Today's the day to go all in. Today's the day to leave your nets, to leave whatever you're doing, and say, Lord, I am all in. And when we do this, we can be used mightily. We don't have time to go there, but in the book of Acts, there's a dispute. There you have a bunch of Jewish believers, and they're seeing a work of the Lord, a revival, if you would, but it's a bunch of Gentile believers. They don't know their culture. They don't know their beliefs. They don't know how they grew up. And now they're saying, how do we allow these Gentiles to become Christians? Do they have to become Jews first and then Christians? So they have a meeting, right? A big deal meeting. It's Paul, it's Peter, it's the disciples, it's all the big wigs, if you would, right, of the original church. And they're there to meet and say, what, what should we do? How do we allow these Gentiles in the church? What do they have to do? And the person who's leading that meeting, the person who Paul's quiet to and Peter's quiet to is James, the half-brother of Jesus. 
And they're listening to him and what he has to say on how they should accept these men into the fold of God. Again, family, it's never too late for you. Stop focusing on the past and how old you were when you came to the Lord. Just press fully into God. Again, John, the Lord saved him. He got called into ministry when he was a teenager. And you have Moses called into ministry when he's 80 years old. Again, the Lord uses both of them. The title that, James, that Jude gives himself, right? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. This word is that word in the Greek, doulos. It's a servant, a bond slave. It's someone without rights. Someone who's given up their rights, given up their choices, given up their freedoms, if you would. And man, my prayer for my life and our lives is that we would have the humility to correctly view our relationship with Jesus. To know the truth of what we owe him if we believe we're going to heaven. If we call him Lord, there's only one option, and that's to serve him. If you say you're a servant of Jesus, the only way you could be a servant is if you're actually serving. If you're calling yourself a servant and not serving the Lord in any aspect of your life, you're simply not a servant. And if you're not a servant of Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven. That's how it works, right? Jesus warned us that in the day when people come up to heaven, right, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord. I'm your servant. I'm your servant. And what's he going to tell them? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. They were not servants of the Lord. They were servants of iniquity. They were servants of their own bellies, servants of their own sins. So we need to realize if we're saying we're going to heaven, we must be servants of Christ. Not servants of ourselves, not servants of our sin, but servants of Jesus Christ. Someone without rights. Again, family, if we call him Lord, there's only one option. We must serve him. David Guzik, he points out, he says, Without a doubt, Jude valued the fact that Jesus was his half-brother and that he was able to grow up with him in the same household as Jesus. But even more valuable to him was this new relationship with Jesus Christ. To Jude, the blood of the cross that saved him, was more important than the family blood in his veins that related him to Jesus. Jude could say it with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Again, family, to really have access to heaven, he must be your Lord. Must be your general. Must be your commander. And you can't be under a general or under a commander if you're always disobeying orders. Doesn't work. You're going to get sent home. You're going to get sent home. So again, for each and every one of us, may we be obeying those orders. We see here who he's penning and writing this letter to at the end of verse 1. Right? He says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Again, this postcard, this letter, if you would, is written to a group of Christians at large. He's not just writing it to a specific church or a specific group. He's writing it to Christians at large. And Jude gives us three facets of a Christian. They are called, they are sanctified, and they are preserved. It all starts off with being called. Every Christian has been called by God. We are not the initiators of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are definitely depraved. We have no good within us. This word called is literally the word invited. And what God has done is he's invited the whole world into this relationship with him. But what do we need at the end of an invitation? A response. There must be a response. 
I don't know how good you are with this. I don't know if it's a Miami thing or a culture thing, right? At the end of an invite, at the end of an invitation, there's four letters, right? You guys know what those letters say, right? RSVP, right? How good are we at actually answering that RSVP or like the day of, I'm not so good at this. Please forgive me if I've hurt you and haven't RSVP'd, right? And we need to respond. We need to say, yes, I am attending. Yes, I want this. If you're quick, you could turn to Matthew 22. And in Matthew 22, we see this same word here in the Greek. And Jesus is giving us a parable. What's a parable, right? A heavenly, uh, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We're not, we're not so good with just straight theology for hours and hours and hours on end. But if we can give a story that correlates to that theology and to that doctrine, it holds our attention in a much better way. And in Matthew 22, verse 1, it says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Literally what that word in verse 3 is, is he invited those who were invited. And yet, they were not willing to come. Again, Jesus, God the Father, he's invited the whole world into this friendship and relationship with him. But we need to respond to this invitation. And whether we like it or not, everyone's going to respond. It's just going to be with a yes or with a no. We're going to come to the humility, the Lord opening our eyes, or we're going to harden our hearts at seeing who God is. In Acts 2, chapter 2, verse 21, on the first sermon, the first Bible study after Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended, Peter's giving this incredible Bible study, and at the end of the Bible study, in verse 21, Peter says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, he is the initiator, we are the responders. He is the initiator, we are the responders. All of mankind has been called to and invited into this relationship with God. Hopefully, we are just those who have responded saying, yes, Lord, I accept this invitation. The next facet of a believer is that they are sanctified. And now this is without a doubt for every believer. Every Christian has been sanctified and is going through the ongoing process of sanctification. I wish we had time to go there in Romans, but it literally says we've been predestined for sanctification, for looking more and more like Jesus Christ. What sanctification? Being set apart from this world and now being a servant for the Lord. We were all once servants of sin, and now he's plucked us up, he's picked us up out of the miry clay, and now we've been set apart to be servants for the Lord. That's how we need to look at our lives. We can't be lukewarm. That literally causes Christ indigestion, right? That's what Revelation tells us. If you want to live in a lukewarm state of life, it makes him want to vomit you out of his mouth. We need to be either servants of sin or servants of the Lord. There's no middle ground. You may be here and say, I serve myself and myself alone. No, that's sin. That's the same thing. That's pride. That's what Satan said. We are either servants of the Lord or we're servants of sin. Charles Spurgeon says, you must first be divorced from sin in order to be married to Christ. You must divorce sin. You must say, hey, this relationship's over. It's not working out. It's not going to happen. And now we need to be married to Christ. 
Let's go to John chapter 17. John 17, and we'll start off in verse 15. And here we see Jesus speaking of the importance of sanctification. And this is definitely a Christian word, if you would, right? I don't know how many of us in our BC days were talking about sanctification or anything like that. I sanctified my dishes or I sanctified my house. I don't think we said anything like that, right? John 17, verse 15, it says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Again, what Jesus desires for each and every one of us is that we would get saved where we are at. And stay and grow and be sanctified to look more and more like Jesus. We are in this world, but we're not of it. Again, each person, when they accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, they don't drop dead right away and go to heaven. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you don't get pulled up into the rapture right away. The Lord leaves us here to be sanctified so that we can be salt and light in this world. That's what he's called us to do. That's who he's called us to be. And now how do we go through this sanctification process? It's by taking in God's word. Right? Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The only way we can be sanctified is by taking in God's word over and over and over and over again. Again, there's no substitute for this. If you just try to listen to teachings or just come to church, just watch motivational messages, just try to watch videos online, right? It's not going to sanctify you. You need to be setting aside time to sanctify yourself and be cleansed in the Word of God. You're talking about this with the young adults on Monday that there's certain, there's certain non-negotiables or I told them hopefully non-negotiables in your life, right? Many of us, we will not leave our homes unless we've brushed our teeth, right? Hopefully. I pray, pray prayerfully, right? It's a non-negotiable. But for some of us reading our Bible, it's sort of, ah, take it or leave it, right? I didn't read it, so it's okay. I'll just listen to someone brushing their teeth instead of brushing my teeth, right? It'll be okay. It's the same thing, right? Nobody, nobody will mind, right? I'll just watch a video of someone brushing their teeth instead of me actually brushing my teeth, right? We need to make it. I need to spend time in God's Word. Because I need to be sanctified. I need to be cleansed. We need to make that a non-negotiable in our lives. Again, if we're saved, we need to be sanctified and going through the ongoing process of sanctification. Our sins should be washing away. Our old habits, that old man, that old woman should continue to be melted away. And we should be looking more and more like Christ. Listening to Pastor Jim Gallagher from Vero Beach, whenever he talks about this process, he cites a man in the book of Nebuchadnezzar that was known for building the dung gate in Jerusalem. Imagine that's your like claim to fame. Yeah, I built the dung gate, right? Why do you build the dung gate? Because you got to get the dung out of the city. Why do you got to get the dung out of the city? Because then your city's going to smell. Your city's going to be a terrible place. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be problems. There's going to be germs if you don't cleanse that out of the city. And each and every one of us in our spiritual lives, we need that dung gate. 
We need to get those sins, that filth, that flesh, and just get it out of our cities, get it out of our homes, out of our lives, and out of our minds. If not, you're going to putrefy. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be gross from the inside out. We need to be being cleansed and looking more and more like Jesus. What's the last facet there of a believer? They are preserved. They are preserved. Every Christian will be preserved by Jesus Christ. The word there is that we are kept by Jesus Christ. We are preserved by Jesus. Jesus is the preservation agent inside each and every one of our lives and hearts. But we are also preserved for Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ has set aside for us. He is the guardian and the protector of our souls. He's also the reason for our souls. It's both of these things that we need to hold on to. We can turn quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And here we see a great example how Jesus is going to preserve us. He's that preservative in our lives for heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 and 24. It tells us now may the God of peace himself What's the first process? Sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Again, Jesus is the essence in our lives that will keep us until we either die or we get raptured and we see him face to face. He's that agent within us, the Holy Spirit within us. That's what preserves us. So what does that mean? Do we sort of just kick back and relax? Jesus is going to do all the work. We just get to lay down and allow him to just float us on by. We're going to crowd surf. Jesus is going to crowd surf us right into heaven. No. A couple scriptures here. You can just write these down. 1 Timothy 5 verse 22. It says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Preserve yourself. It's the same idea here. So what Paul is telling his son in the faith, Timothy, is do not share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself away from other people's sins. They want to sin. That's between them and the Lord. But keep yourself. Preserve yourself from other people's sins. James chapter 1 verse 27. James tells us pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You want to say you have a real relationship with Christ? You want to say you're religious? This is what James says. You should be visiting those that can't, in a sense, bless you back. Visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction. And we are to preserve ourselves, our lives, and keep ourselves unspotted from this world. This is our role. This is your role to keep yourself unspotted. Not even one spot, one stain, one idea would creep into our minds and lives and hearts from this world. Finally, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. John says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, preserves himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Again, the idea here is not that we live perfectly. The idea here is that we're not in a perpetual state of sin. If you're constantly sinning over and over again, habitual sin, the same sin over and over again, 
I love you, I care for you, but God's word says you are not born of God. And if you're not born of God, you're not saved. If you're not saved, you're not going to heaven. So we're habitually sinning the same thing over and over and over again. You're not saved. That's what God's word says. If you're saved, what's going to happen is that you're going to preserve yourself from sin. And the wicked one's not going to be able to touch you, to own you, to pressure you and keep you down in these sins. Now we go to verse 3. In verse 3, Jude is going to reveal to us the reason for this letter. We've seen who it is that's writing it, who he's writing it to, and now the purpose and reason for him writing this letter. Verse 3 and 4, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what Judas telling the believers that he's writing to is, hey, I was diligent and I was excited to write about our common salvation. What is Jude talking about here, right? Is our salvation is common? Is it sort of boring? Is it on any shelf? You could find it in any store. Is that what he's talking about? No, not at all. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something that's ordinary, but common salvation in the sense that we are all saved in one common way. There's only one way, there's only one gate, there's only one door for salvation. It doesn't matter who you are or who you're not. It doesn't matter how much money you make or how much money you owe. There's only one way for salvation. And this knits us, this bonds all of us together. That's what makes Christianity and the church so special. It's because we can come from all different walks of life, different incomes, different lifestyles, and yet the Lord brings us all together and we're all knitted by Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And that's a unity and a bond that we can only find in Christ. Sometimes I tell some of my friends, man, I would have never been friends with you if it wouldn't have been for Jesus Christ, right? Sometimes the people you hang out with, you just sort of laugh at. In my busy days, I would have not liked you whatsoever, right? I would have made fun of you. We got into fights, right? All sorts of things, right? You have criminals here and you have police officers here, right? The, the Lord. Past criminals, not current criminals, right? <laughs> the, the Lord, he's done these things. Charles Spurgeon, he says, Upon other matters there are distinctions among believers, but yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Armenian as well as the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near of kin than they know of. And their intense unity is deep, essential truth is a greater force than most of them imagine. Only give it scope and it will work wonders. Again, that's why all throughout the epistles, the pastors, the leaders, the apostles, they just try to knock out any type of rift or dissension or schism within the body of Christ. Because if we take our, our eyes off of ourselves... If we really put our pride to death, we'll be blown away at the unity that we're able to have in Christ Jesus. So that's what Jude really wanted to write about. And that would have been a beautiful letter. However, he says, this is what I wanted to talk about. But I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
Every once in a while you have a pastor come up here. Happens a lot with Bill Gallatz and other super spirit-filled guys that know God's word. That They're like, man, I was planning for this teaching. And then the Lord just led me in this direction here. Let's go for this, right? That's what's happening in Jude. Jude's saying, I was going to write this. But now the Holy Spirit has imposed this heart, this idea, this mindset for you. This word contend. It's an athletic term to wrestle, to fight, to, again, sweat, to fight someone else. It's a term in warfare to fight against an enemy. And what Jude is telling us is that we are all called to this wrestling. We are all called to this fight. This word is a strengthened form of the word to agonize, which is speaking of the hard, diligent, and continuous work that we must put in towards this. I don't know if you've ever wrestled or done any form of self-defense, and sometimes you do five-minute rounds, and you could be trying your hardest for the first two minutes. If you ever stop doing your hardest, bad things happen. It's just what happens, right? You could be trying your hardest the first four minutes, and if you just go limp the last minute, right, it's done. You're going to get choked out. You're going to break an arm. Something's going to happen, right? We need to put in work and work continually in this and who is Jude exhorting to do this? Right? Open book test. You. Right? You just point to the person next. He's exhorting you, right? No, it's all of us. Jude is saying each and every one of us are exhorted to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, Jude is exhorting each and every one of us here to fight for the faith with every ounce of your strength. This is not just a calling for pastors. This is not just a calling for leaders or people that want to do well or be high up in the church. No, this is a calling for every single believer. This is the calling for you in the pew, you listening in the blue chair, you listening online, you listening to this teaching. God has exhorted you to fight for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Again, what are we fighting for? The faith. What's the faith? The essential truths of the gospel. We are fighting for the word of God. That's where we find the essential truths of the gospel. It's here in the word of God. Again, Jude is encouraging us to step into the ring. Get into the arena. Stop sitting on the sidelines. The game in church isn't to see how quickly you can get in and out. The game in church is to see how much you can be filled how much you can encourage others, and how much you can be used by God. That's what he's exhorting and telling each and every Christian to do. We could turn quickly to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. And why is Jude encouraging them to get in the arena, to get off the bench, to get out of the sidelines, to stop being that Monday morning quarterback, to stop being that backseat driver, and get in the battle? Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. Galatians 1 verse 6, Paul's writing to the church here and he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. 
For do I not persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Again, Paul's blown away here that these new believers, these young believers, having tasted of the grace of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel, were quickly turning to false gospels. Quickly turning to things that were adding to the gospel, subtracting to the gospel, misinterpreting the gospel. And he's saying, look, even if I would come back and start teaching you a different gospel, I pray that I would be accursed, that I would spend eternity in hell. If an angel would come down from heaven and preach to you a different gospel, let him spend eternity in hell. The gospel's already been taught. That's the same thing that Jude said. It has been once for all delivered to the saints. God does not speak in the same authority of Scripture anymore. When someone says, thus says the Lord, or God said this to me, you got to be very careful what God is saying. Right? Sometimes I want to take it back to the Old Testament. When a prophet would say something and it wouldn't happen, you just stone them to death. I know it would be it. It would be done. It would be over with. Right? You could only lie about God one time. Right? Very quick, very easy. But we have to be careful because there are false prophets today. Verse 4, it tells us certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord, the grace of our God, into lewdness, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jude here is battling the same dangers that we saw in the Peter's epistles and also in John's epistles. Jude here is battling false teachers. He says that they have crept in unnoticed. Again, it might be a news flash for some of us, but we say, man, that person didn't really seem that bad. They, they, they spoke about Scripture. They smiled. They weren't wearing a false prophet shirt, right? It can't be that bad. No, they crept in unnoticed. The word there is that they slipped into the back door of the church, and now they started preaching. Right? I know no one here, right, sneaking into the bedroom window so that you can sneak back into your house. That's what he's saying about these men. They've crept into the church, and now what are they doing? They are turning the grace of our God into lewdness, and they are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, you could just write that down. It says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Again, family, when Satan comes and tempts us, he's not dressed up in a Halloween costume that someone's going to wear later today. He's not wearing red horns. He doesn't have a pitchfork and pinching you while he's trying to tempt you. He's dressed as a good thing. He's dressed as this is going to help us. This is going to be a benefit to us. And yet it's all a lie. So now these false teachers, they do the same exact thing. They creep in. Hey, this is going to be good for you. This is going to be awesome. And yet they are false teachers. He gives us two marks to judge these false teachers. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. That word lewdness, it means lasciviousness. If you're like me and that still leaves you lost, that means unbridled lust, excess, and shamelessness. An easy way to remember is that lasciviousness is a license to sin. These false prophets, they've taken the grace of our Lord 
And now they've led people to sin without shame. They've taken the grace of Jesus and they've used it so that we would dull our senses, so we'd have no conscience and no decency in the sins that are being committed. Again, the grace of our God, how good and gracious our God is. We could spend months just teaching on the grace of God, right? What's the grace of God real quick? Mercy of God is not getting what we deserve. Grace of God is getting what we don't deserve, right? Mercy of God, each and every one of us, we're about to take on the death penalty because we are sinners. Each of us deserve hell. Mercy of God is just saying, hey, you don't have to die. It's okay. You can live your life and I'll just leave you alone. That's the mercy of God. What's the grace of God? You're in line for the death penalty. And then the governor comes down, right? Ron DeSantis comes down and says, you know what? I'm going to, don't worry about it. I'm going to put my son and he's going to take your place. My son's going to die for you. All of that goes down. You're blown away. You're weeping in your cell. And he says, hey, come on. You're free. Let, let, let's go to the courthouse. And there he adopts you, right? Zach DeSantis, right? He, he adopts you. And then after that, now he takes you, takes you to his, to his house. He gives, you, he gives you a room in his home. And then after that, he takes you to his attorney. And he says, you know what? I want to put you on the will. All that I have is yours. All that I leave behind, it's all for you. That is the grace of our Lord. That's the grace of God. And now there are people that use God's grace to sin all the more. And they are false prophets. They're false teachers. And again, it creeps into our hearts. And what kind of a person would use the grace of their spouse, showing them grace and mercy and forgiveness as a license to sin against the person they claim to love all the more? That's a depraved mind. That's a depraved person. That person has no idea what grace and love truly means. Again, easy example. What's mercy? The police officer gives you a warning and you don't have the ticket. What's the grace? The police officer lets you go and gives you the souped-up Camaro police car and says, take it home, right? It's all yours. That's the grace of our Lord. And there are people today who try to sin more and more, perverting the gospel, perverting the word of God. They have no idea. They have no power of the grace of God in their lives. What's the other mark of these type of people? They deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's through their lifestyle. Their lifestyle is showing that they deny Jesus and the power of Jesus. Or possibly they're just offering an alternative Jesus. Man, this Jesus is good. You just diet, you exercise, you put your money in your 401k, you sprinkle some Jesus, and you'll have the best life ever. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus has to be the Lord of your life. If not, he's not your Lord and you have no access to heaven. And here Jude, very quickly, he's going to give us three Old Testament examples in human history when you have a majority of good people who were swayed towards evil by a small majority of false teachers, if you would. And this is why we, as godly people, need to fight for the truth with every ounce of our strength. If not, there will be severe consequences. Again, are you in the battle are you in the arena for your kids, for your spouse, for your family, for your grandkids? Because if not, there will be major consequences. Very quickly, verse 5 through 7, he says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, after destroyed those who did not believe 
And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Here Jude, he gives us three examples. The first example here is the Israelite people. And verse 5, it reveals to us the dangers of lack of faith and lack of trust in the word of God. The dangers of not having faith and trust in God's word. Right? He mentions the Hebrew people after being saved from Egypt. The Israelites spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God frees them. How does God free them? Is it by an, an Israeli SEAL Team 6? Right? Is that how he saves them? Is it through military means? Is it through pulling them out? No, he saves them with 11 miracles, right? Several miracles. All of the water in the land of Egypt all turns to blood in an instance. Every water bottle, every jar, every river, every body of water turns to blood in an instance. Pharaoh says, I'm sorry. Everything turns back to water, right? Some of the other ones very quickly, frogs, frogs everywhere. You open your oven, frogs coming out, right? Turn on your blender, frog in there, right? You open the cupboard, frogs in there. You open your drawers, frogs all over the land of Egypt, except in Goshen, where the Israelites were living. So if you're an Israelite, some of the ladies, hallelujah, praise you, Jesus, right? No, no frogs here. So many miracles. One of the last miracles, again, it, it boggles my mind, is just darkness, a perpetual darkness. Not just darkness if you've ever gone caving or spelunking if you're fancy, right? If you've ever done this and they turn off the lights, you see how dark it is. You can't see your own hand in front of your face. But not only was it an actual darkness, but it was the presence of just darkness. And yet in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, there was still light where they were living. So you have all these miracles over and over again. The last of the ten plagues, right? God warns them, hey, you got to kill an innocent lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and if you do this, I will pass over your house and your oldest son will be saved. God frees them in that. Pharaoh finally lets them go. They're there at the Red Sea. What do they do? Do they trust in God? They all look at Pharaoh and they say, they all look at Moses and say, why did you bring us out here to die? That's their first response. Ten miracles, right? And their first response is, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? God saves them. He's a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. He stops the armies of Egypt. He rips the Red Sea in two. The Israelites walk through. As the Egyptians finally go through the, the Red Sea, what happens? God slams the entire ocean on them, and he kills all of them. If that wasn't enough, right, he saves bitter waters. He has bread rain down from heaven. He has quail land in front of them and basically say, eat me, right? He does all these miracles. And yet when they come to the end, when they're right at the promised land, Psalm 95, verse 10 and 11. You can read that whole psalm when you get home. It's a great psalm. It says, for 40 years I was grieved with that generation. And I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Again, what was the danger? They sent 12 spies into the promised land. Two spies come back and say, it's amazing. It's incredible. The grapes are this big. It's the land of milk and honey. God has it for us. God said that that was our land. Two men had faith and trust in God's word. 
The other 10 men, what did they say? There's giants in the land. They're going to squish us like grasshoppers. They're going to step on us. They're going to kill us. And now the lack of faith, if you would, of these 10 false prophets affected the millions of Hebrew people. And now they lost their faith and trust in God's word. Again, we need to be careful. There are many today trying to dilute the power of God's word. Trying to say it's not real or this book doesn't belong here. This verse doesn't belong here. We need to have faith and trust in the word of God. Again, false teachers, false prophets. Yeah, I know the Bible, but did you know? Alarm should be going off. Why are you trying to water down my faith and trust in God's word? Again, that's a sign of a false teacher, of a false prophet. Verse 6, I got to get through this fast. Verse 6, it tells us angels who did not keep their proper domain, but they left their own abode, and he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This speaks of the dangers of open rebellion and not being content in the word of God. Open rebellion and not being content in the word of God. Here we're looking at Satan and his angels, right? And talk about incredible beings, everlasting beings, powerful beings. They're able to see the glory of God and not melt away or die or anything like that. And yet they had open rebellion. Satan was not content in who God had made him to be. And so what does Satan do in Isaiah 14, 14? I will arise. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to do this. And now in his pride, in his open rebellion, in him not being content in with what God said, they all got cast down to hell, right? Satan, one third of all the angels, they get sent down to hell because of their rebellion and not being content in the word of God. How do we apply this? We need to be careful when we are trying to rebel against God's word. We read certain verses and instead of just saying, Lord, your word is true, you're God, I'm a worm, right? We've been going through 2 Samuel with the young adults, I'm a dead dog, you're, you're God. Lord, I take your word as it is. No, what do some people do? They rebel against God's word. That can't be true. This is hate speech. This is 2021. Don't you know what we do? They're not content in what, what God's word says. Whether it's gender, sexuality, roles, all these different things. We have to be careful with this and be careful with the false teachers that have open rebellion and not being content in God's word. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after the flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In Ezekiel 16... Verse 49 and 50, here we get a, a picture of what led to Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. Were they a good city and then one morning they all woke up and gave up into their sexual desires? No. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Here, Jude is warning us of the dangers of following our passions that go against God's word. You can have passions. Your heart can be saying certain things. But if it goes against God's word, it's wrong. doesn't matter what it is. 
If it goes against God's word, it is wrong. And if we just follow our heart, if we just follow our feelings, if we just follow our emotions and our passions, and they go against God's word, it's a dangerous place to be. And how did they get there? How did Sodom and Gomorrah get there? Ezekiel told us it started off in pride. Again, how do you read God's word? How do you look at salvation? How do you look at heaven? As a person that doesn't deserve it, as that worm, as that dead dog, as the dirt and the dust of the earth, and God decided to breathe in us, save us, preserve us, again, who in the world are we? Or do you look at yourself that you kind of don't even need God because you're so great and awesome, right? You're like 99% of the way there and just need a little sprinkle of Jesus on top and now you're in heaven, right? How do you see yourself? How do you read God's word? Are you constantly in battle with God's word? Oh, that, that doesn't really mean that. Oh, that, that shouldn't be there. Oh, I, I watch this YouTube video. This shouldn't be there, right? That's just pride. You're basically telling the author of God's word, hey, I know more than you. That's basically what's happening when we battle God's word when it comes to our passions that are against him. They had pride. They had fullness of food. They thought they didn't need God. They had all that they needed. And because they thought they had all that they needed, they had an abundance of idleness. How does your life look like? Is there an abundance of idleness? Dangerous things happen when there's abundance of idleness, right? We see Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened to David when he had an abundance of idleness. And for some of us, we're, we're fighting and we're battling sins because we're just too idle, we're not doing anything for the Lord, so it's easy. Satan just leaves us, he spins us, and just sends us on our way because we are so idle that it's easy for us to fall into sin. Right, we mentioned this at the 9 a.m. service. The Christians and the believers in Afghanistan, I don't think they're struggling with their sexuality. I don't think they're struggling with pornography because if they believe in Jesus Christ, their lives are on the line. Again, same thing with people that send their lives out to be missionaries for the Lord. People that are doing the work of God. Does that, ex does that exempt you from sin? Not at all. But it surely helps out being in the work, being in the holy rut at times. So if you're idle, if you're doing nothing for the Lord, you're just opening yourself up for danger, for your sin and for your passions. Right, we spoke about it in 1 John. The, the Christians that want to argue with different Christians. No, no. King James Version is the best. No, no. King James, New King James, NIV, NSV, ESV. That's just too much time on your hands. That's all it is. You just got to serve more if you got enough time to argue about that, right? The kids in kids ministry, try going to a five-year-old and tell them why King James Version is the best version, right? They don't care. They want to hear the power of God, the majesty of God, how God loves them. That's what they want to hear. So again, for us, are we just set? Do we think we're just full? We have more than enough food. We have more than enough idle time dangerous things happen. Again, we should not follow our passions that are against God's word. we got to submit to God's word. Finally, verse 8, it says, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Jude calls these false teachers dreamers. He's speaking of the insanity of their thinking that God did not care about what they did in their physical life. We talked about these guys in 1 John, right? Gnostics, the, Gnostic, the Gnosticism. That they thought because Jesus was simply a spirit, he only cares about our spirit. So we can do whatever we feel like, and at the end of the day, we're going to go to heaven. Jude says they've lost touch with reality. 
They're just dreamers. They're out in the clouds, right? We all know people like that sometimes. Sometimes we're those people, right? Where's your mind at? What are you thinking about? And that's what Judas speaking of these false teachers. They've lost complete touch with reality. Thinking that God does not care about what we do in our bodies. Of course God cares about what we do in our bodies. God cares about our sins. No, all roads do not lead to heaven. At the end, love does win, but love has pure righteousness as well. And we need to hold on to that. There are many false teachers today that are trying to discredit the word of God so that they could live however they want. They try to discredit the book of Jude itself even in their heart's desire to follow after their own heart and their own flesh and not follow after God. They come at you with intellect, right? Oh, I know this, I know that, I know this. Simply put, we should ask him, hey, what sin do you want God to make okay? Because that's what it comes down to. Oftentimes they're trying to rip out certain books of the Bible and certain verses so that they can live in sin and think that their sin is okay. They reject authority. If you notice, Jude, he likes to speak in threes. This is the third three that he gives us here, right? And he says they reject authority. They reject the authority of the Bible. They reject the authority of church leadership. Maybe you've heard them. They have the power to hear from God himself, right? They'll tell you that. They'll tell you that they have to serve God rather than men, and yet they're battling against godly men, right? We have to be careful, The vast majority of the Bible, it's humans ministering to humans, right? It's people under the authority of another person. That's how God speaks even today. So if we find someone that's constantly wanting to buck against authority or reject authority, it's a danger sign. If someone tells you, hey, you know, you're at this church, but those leaders, they're this, they're that, they're this or that, dangerous place, danger zone. They reject authority. Finally, they speak evil of dignitaries. They are very bold in their rejection of God-placed authority. Again, God, he does use angels throughout the Bible, but he uses humans to speak to other humans. And one of the ways that we show we love God is being able to be under the authority of another person. Be careful when you see someone who's unwilling to be under anyone's authority. The people that say, I serve God and God alone, he talks to me directly. I wake up every morning and he tells me what to do, right? Whatever the case may be, got to be careful with that. Whose authority are you under? Timothy, he had Paul. Joshua, he had Moses. The 12 disciples, they had Jesus. Jesus had God the Father. All throughout scripture, you see authority and a chain of command. And pride always bucks at authority. That's just always the case. Always the case. I see it in my three kids. I saw it in my life with my parents, right? Our pride bucks at authority. What does humility do? Man, you're, you're there to love me and protect me, so I'm good with it. Humility looks at the good things. Man, you've loved me this long. You've taken care of me this long. Who would I be without you, right? And there's some of us, myself included, I don't know who I would be without this church or the authority in this church, the other authorities in my life. And what happens when we start to come against authority or badmouth authority? You are completely ungrateful for what God has done in your life through those men. That's what happens. That's all that happens. You see it with kids and their parents talking garbage about their parents. You have no gratitude for your parents paying the bills and changing your diapers and putting up with your whining and complaining, right? Because that was me. 
I had no gratitude for what my parents did for me, and it was just a bunch of pride. But hey, if the worship team can come up, pastors can get ready, what do we take from this, right? How do we apply this to our lives? Is God's word the ultimate authority in your life? Are you fighting against God's word? Are you trying to look for ways, look for loopholes so that you can do whatever you want to do and think you're okay with the Lord, right? Other ways we can apply this. Is Jesus truly the Lord over your life? Are you a servant of the Lord or are you a servant of your own flesh? Are you a servant of the enemy, of Satan? Again, that we would do that. The last exhortation to get in the arena. Get in the war. Get in the battle. Each and every one of us are called to stand up for the word of God. Our kids come to us and they try to say why they want to do X, Y, or Z. Show me chapter and verse, right? Show me in God's word why this is happening. Why are you doing this? Why are you living like that, right? We need to enter into the arena to protect one another, to fight for one another. Friends, they say things, man, I don't think that's biblical. Show me chapter and verse while you're gossiping about someone, right? Show me about that, right? We need to get into the arena and hold the gospel, protect the gospel. People preaching false gospels, false doctrines, man, get in the arena. And next week we'll see the proper way to get in the arena and fight that battle. But hey, let's all stand and we'll pray.